Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Health Leader Forge is a production of the University of New Hampshire's College of Health and Human Services. Today's guest is Kevin Callahan, the CEO of Exeter Health Resources in Exeter, New Hampshire. Kevin has been the CEO of Exeter Health Resources for nearly 30 years. His tenure spans many of the healthcare industry's most tumultuous changes. Kevin describes himself as a person who thrives on the challenge of change, and in this interview, he talks about how he has kept the organization adaptable. The original interview with Kevin is 90 minutes in length. I've produced an abridged 45-minute version as well as the 90-minute version. Both the abridged and the unabridged versions are available on the Health Leader Forge website. You are listening to the abridged version of the interview. If you wish to listen to the other version of the interview, please return to the Health Leader Forge website. Welcome to the Forge, Kevin. Nice to be here. You studied history at Seton Hall in New Jersey, and you graduated magna cum laude. Does that mean you were a Jersey boy? Jersey boy, right. No, not in terms of the play, the Jersey right. Boys, but uh, born and raised in New Jersey. Twenty-six okay. years, I spent 26 years uh, in New Jersey. I uh, went to Seton Hall prep, uh, prep school prior to that, and then subsequently graduated from Seton Hall University. Okay, and you studied history. Uh, what, what, why did you choose to study history, and uh, do you still have an interest in history? I do. I actually have a very uh, deep uh, history. Um, uh, my particular focus was in colonial American history, okay. but uh, and in particular, uh, the influence of um, uh, the British um, and their their sensibilities regarding governance and uh, governments and the impact it had on uh, early colonial thinking. And I spent a lot of time focusing, particularly on Thomas Jefferson. Oh. Interesting gentleman are in our American history, uh, uh, suffice it to say, a brilliant man in his own right. Yes. Um, so, yeah, uh, but I also have a pretty deep interest in the history of leadership across the different um, centuries, um, and so particularly in the uh, 20th century leadership. All right. Yeah. Great. After you graduated from Seton, what did you do? Um, from there, I uh, needed to work. So I started working in a hospital, uh, and uh, my sister uh, at that time was a nurse. Um, and um, so I thought, well, it's a good place to work. Um, I would kind of figure out what I, where I ultimately wanted to go, what direction I wanted to go in. They paid well, <clears throat> and I knew a lot of people that uh, worked there. And so, so I, I worked a summer in the hospital after I graduated. What did you do? I worked in hyperbaric medicine. I actually started working there. Now, and now that I kind of reflect on it, I started working there my junior year of college. Okay. I'm um, uh, a very active uh, uh, scuba diver. I've spent a lot of time diving around the Western Hemisphere. It's, uh, that got me interested a little bit in hyperbaric medicine. And so I worked uh, in hyperbaric medicine for probably close to three, almost four years uh, between uh, the last two years of college and about two years after college. So as I spent that time uh, in hyperbaric medicine, and as a result of that, getting very much uh, enmeshed in, in the organization of a hospital and how it ran, and I was quite fascinated by it. <clears throat> and um, I remember somewhere in senior year, toward the end of my senior year, uh, perhaps, um, 
going, uh, making an appointment to speak with um, uh, one of the administrators of the hospital to try to understand what he did. And, okay. And so um, we, ch- we chatted, I chatted at some length, and that kind of piqued my interest in understanding a little bit more about working in a hospital from a leadership perspective, what it meant, uh, what would be the necessary educational requirements to pursue to be able to fulfill that aspiration. And that kind of pivoted me away from law and pivoted me away from teaching colonial history um, to considering a career in healthcare management. And um, there I went. Okay. So you went to um, George Washington to mm-hmm. get your, was it a, it was an MA? MHA. An yeah. MHA. Okay. Yeah. So you, you did your you did your degree at George Washington, and the next thing I saw on your CV was was Exeter. Did you do anything in between, or did you? Yeah, I did two years postgraduate work <clears throat> in Fall River. Um, the uh, you you were required, and I still think you are at George Washington. You were required to do a one year residency program, kind of an insight to residency, where you spent time working in a healthcare environment for a year. Um, we have a residency opportunity for you, and it's in a place called Fall River. In Fall River, Fall River, Massachusetts, and so it, this was again a uh, health system that was merging Union Hospital and Truesdale Hospital, now South Coast Health System, which includes New Bedford and a couple of other health systems down there, and <clears throat> and it sounded really interesting, and uh, so I came up for an interview uh, in Fall River, <clears throat> met the CEO at that point in time, and was. Um, totally uh, struck by the opportunity, the intellectual opportunity to really learn about the merging of two organizations, both, both from a business perspective, an economic perspective, a corporate perspective, but the merging of two very different cultures. Yeah. Uh, and so um, I spent um, two years there. Uh, one year I did my required residency, and they asked me to stay and do a, uh, a second-year fellowship uh, there. So I spent two years in Fall River. Okay. And so, um, and I learned a lot. Um, a lot there, uh, and um, that's an exciting time to be in an organization. When you're it really is, through. there was a lot going on. It was I would have to characterize it as an incredibly positive and an incredibly negative learning experience. You saw the both the best and the worst of organizations trying to come together organizationally. A lot of um, organizational infighting. Uh, there was <laughs> conflicts amongst board members, conflicts amongst two different communities. It was really quite interesting to see how uh, two community assets with their own deep, rich traditions uh, were attempting to come together and create one uh, entity. And so I learned a lot from that. But it had also persuaded me at that point in time that I don't know if I want to stay in healthcare. So Really? No. Okay. I was going to go back and I, I kind of dabbled with the thought of going to law school. So I took my uh, LSATs did well in them, was accepted in law school, and was seriously thinking about going to law school to do healthcare law. Okay. I liked healthcare. I figured I'd be really good on the corporate side of healthcare law. And uh, so uh, before I made that final decision, though, a good friend of mine, which will bring me up to Exeter, who was a uh, executive at uh, this merged health system, a system attempting to complete the merger, in Fall River says, you know, there's an interesting place that I think you ought to go take a look at. I don't know. You might be a good lawyer, but I think you'd be a better hospital executive. Okay. Oh, really? Where's that place? In New Hampshire. It's a small organization up in uh, in Exeter, New Hampshire. And so I say, yeah, let me think about it. I'm, I'm kind of uh, thinking I want to go in a different direction. So his office is down uh, from mine, and he was good friends with the CEO that was up here at this time. And at, at least once a day, hey, you're going to go up there and take a look at that position? This is a position that's open. You know, take a look at it. It sounds like a perfect match. 
you know, if you don't like it, you can always leave. <laughs> Excuse me. You can always leave and go back to uh, law, uh, go to law school. I don't know. Okay, I'll come up and I'll interview. So I came up and interviewed uh, with the CEO at that point in time, and um, I didn't really take the interview all that serious. You know, it was okay. maybe more for the sake of satisfying um, uh, my friend uh, back in Fall River, and to you know, out of a professional courtesy, because he had reached out to the CEO here. This position was open. Right. And, uh, and vouched for my upstanding character uh, as an individual. And so, um, so I, I was convinced that I wasn't going to like it when I first came up, but I was surprised. Okay. Um, I was surprised by the people that worked here. I was surprised by the depth of their commitments um, to, community, uh, to the community that they served. And I was curious to pursue it more. And so I came back for a more formal interview with the board chairman and gosh, I think probably the entire organization at that point in time. And so um, I was offered a position here. I committed to stay no more than two years. <laughs> okay. So because I wasn't sure how it was all going to work out. But I said, you know, I can, I can make a commitment for two years. Um, and so I committed for two years, and I stayed for 30, 33 years, something like that. And that's how I got here. Wow. All right. So they recruited you. Uh, they did. Mm -hmm. And you, what was your first position? What, 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 executive what vice president. Wow. So I was executive vice president. And as a result of that, I served uh, in an executive capacity whenever the CEO was not present, uh, but also had principal operating responsibilities for uh, the ambulatory services of the organization as well as the support services of the organization. So okay. um, that time, Exeter was a relatively small, small organization. I think we only had about 300 employees. I think we're somewhere around 1,700 at this point in time. Okay. And so it was a, um, in some ways, it was a smaller organization. You knew everyone, mm -hmm. and they knew you. And, and in some ways, that made communication that much more intimate and direct. Um, so it's become a little bit more complex. It's become more challenging as we've grown over the years. But it has um, not lost the values uh, that attracted me here as an organization. It's retained an intimacy, not, yeah. notwithstanding its size, um, that enables people to communicate and stay connected as colleagues. What did you learn during that during that first five years or so that you were here that kind of prepared you for your next role, which was CEO? Sure. Uh, that, yeah, that came uh, pretty quickly. Um, well, I think when you when you come out of graduate school and you spend a couple of years uh, postgraduate work, you think you know a lot. You think. Um, and in some ways, uh, perhaps uh, more than other people that uh, had gone directly from graduate school without spending time either in a residency or in a fellowship. In the middle of the battles, uh, I think in some ways I probably knew a lot more than most graduate students coming directly out of the classroom setting. But I didn't have any idea how much I had to learn uh, coming into this position. And so, and, and this was a relatively small organization. I left a much larger organization uh, mm -hmm. in Fall River to come here. Um, and so in some ways, um, I don't think I appreciated the total complexity of any organization that no matter whether you have 100 beds or whether you have 1,000 beds, um, you have an amazing uh, degree of complexity in any organization. You combine services with people and people with different backgrounds and educational disciplines, all trying to collaborate um, and converge on providing patient care in an environment that is the most probably one of the most regulated uh, uh, industries in America with enormous uncertainty over the economics underlying healthcare, um, it created uh, a degree of complexity, I think, that I did not fully appreciate on the one hand. 
Um, on the other hand, what I came to appreciate is that leadership doesn't have to be necessarily complex. Uh, and I think uh, uh, being able to work in a small organization initially really caused me to understand the, the critical essence of effective leadership that can ultimately be multiplied over any scalable organization. You know, and there are elements that are true in any leadership position so that whether you're leading a team, you know, platoon, or mm -hmm. whether you're leading, you know, 475,000 people in the case of IBM globally across, you know, different countries, there are elements of leadership that ring true no matter what you're doing. And so I learned those here in a, in a very intimate and direct way, and that was a real positive about coming here. Can you give me an example of something that you learned during that period? Absolutely. Um, the thing that people ask me about is, you know, what are some of the m most important leadership constants that you have to have? Mm. And there, there is no question. What struck me is that leadership is an incredibly lonely uh, uh, position at times. Um, not that you're isolated, because people will look at any CEO, any president, any leader, like, you're surrounded by people all the time. And I am. Absolutely. It's like it's yeah. nonstop. It just goes nonstop. There are times, you know, when I go out for a run or I go for a bike ride, I just I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to listen to anything. But your decisions uh, and the consequences of your decisions are very lonely decisions at times. And um, even in the instance where you're not actually controlling other elements of your organization, you bear the responsibility for those elements. And when something goes wrong, it's a very lonely time uh, to recognize that truly the buck does stop with you. Right. So it, the thing that I learned a lot out of that is that is to be comfortable in that loneliness, um, okay. uh, to, to, to embrace it for what it is. Um, and when there's a singular level of accountability, there's a singular level of accountability. And with that, a unique loneliness to yourself. You're alone with your thoughts, your decisions, with your consequences. And learn to savor that and learn to understand those feelings and learn from them. Um, and so that was powerful for me. And, you know, and I know one of the questions that you pose, you know, what are some of the more difficult decisions that you've had to make? Sure. They're all difficult. Okay. You know, you know, when you, when you think about it, and I think the degrees of difficulty, maybe the more you make, the more sanguine you become, that, well, that wasn't all that hard. <laughs> but when you step away from it and look at it, the consequences of any decision, small or large, are always significant. And so, given the fact that you're making decisions continuously, there are certainly degrees in which one decision has much more uh, greater significance or consequence than another. But I... I rarely see a decision that has to be made that's a simple decision, you know. And okay. It's, um, at your level. At my level. Okay. Uh, and so uh, they all have consequences, and you need to understand what those consequences are. And in some cases, you will never understand the totality of those consequences until after the decision is made. Hmm. And so your process, small or big, for making decisions is a continuous process of calculation, of assessing the risk, of assessing the benefit to being able to do that in the moment, uh, to be able to do that in a short cycle time, or in some cases to do it over a long cycle time. Can you give me a, a specific example mm -hmm. of, of a decision that you're talking about? So we get a sense of the scope of sure. what you're talking about. So let's, um, uh, we make the decision, uh, by way of example, uh, we make uh, the decision to buy a, a laboratory, <clears throat> uh, a uh, for-profit uh, commercial laboratory we decided to, uh, to buy. Um, and um, we, uh, it was my pre predecessor, the CEO, said, we ought to buy this laboratory. And I, okay, well, why should we buy it? 
And so we kind of went through the analysis um, and uh, made the decision that we would buy the laboratory <clears throat> and jointly acquire the laboratory with another health system, with another hospital. And so that decision, both in terms of the acquisition of the laboratory, integrating our laboratory operations into it, into a commercial enterprise, both here as well as at the other hospital, having to um, significantly restructure the laboratory, bring in professional management, um, and elevate that laboratory so that it could sustain itself, had a multi-year consequential uh, uh, chain of uh, implications for our organization, all positive okay. in many, many ways. Okay. And so it was a very successful decision to buy the laboratory. Mm -hmm. um, cycle forward probably about 10 years later, maybe 12 years later, okay. um, I concluded that we should sell it. Oh, okay. We so had, things had changed? Things had changed. Okay. It was not necessarily a core competency of ours. The valuation of the commercial laboratory had reached a significant apogee. Um, and um, it had become much larger uh, than what we had contemplated. It's, it, had, it was providing services in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Hawaii, um, wow. and it had grown significantly. And so uh, we decided to sell our ownership interest in it. And probably got about a five or six hundred percent return on our original investment. Still maintaining contract with the laboratory um, to provide services to the hospitals, uh, uh, laboratory services as well. And so pretty significant consequential decision in terms of people, systems, uh, other organizations. Uh, and then just as importantly, when, you, when you're at your high point, when you're doing the best that you can, having the courage to say, maybe we've reached the maximum limits and don't want, we don't want to take any more uh, risk uh, associated with the laboratory. And it's moving in a direction that's not necessarily within our core competencies. Mm -hmm. And to have that um, courage and insightfulness to say, it is appropriate to, to exit a business. It's hard for a lot of healthcare organizations to leave something. You know, we're creators. We create right. services for communities and rarely do we abandon services or go in a different direction. So. That, that's a, you know, that is a great uh, example of that. Um, additionally, we've made decisions on uh, investments in technology. We've made uh, in, uh, decisions in investing in services. Um, somewhere in your questions there, you referenced the uh, decision to joint venture, to enter into affiliation with um, Mass General Hospital for yes. radiation oncology and medical oncology. Um, you know, we... Those are decisions that we make that have long-term consequences um, mm -hmm. uh, to our organization, and hopefully we manage that such that the consequences are all good and that it's beneficial to our patients. But in all instances, it involves people, it involves tens of millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars of capital equipment and capital facilities. So the consequent the, the decisions are pretty significant. Um, so that would be an example. Okay. All right. Just one or so, two. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Let's talk a little bit about. Exeter Health Resources. Sure. Okay. So it, it has three components that I, I've observed. Principal ones. Okay, principal yeah. ones. The, the hospital, core physicians, and Home the care. Rockingham yeah. VNA and hospice. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about the hospital. How big is the hospital? Sure. The uh, hospital, which is the original uh, part of the company, that's what had existed here for, it's probably about 110 years now. It's a 100 beds. It was, okay. 100, it was 100 beds when I got here. Oh, um, it was. Oh, yeah. Okay. It hasn't changed at all. There was great pressure on us to increase beds. I have a, um, a somewhat conservative view of investing in beds, largely because my view is that uh, beds are expensive to build. You do need to have them. 
But I had a sense uh, many years ago that the pressures to um, reduce hospitalization, reduce length of stay, would create a situation where we could have stranded capital beds that are being underutilized. And so when you look at some of the classic forecasting models for inpatient capacity, if we had applied those uh, classic forecasting capacity models, we would have built another 50 beds, 150 beds. I didn't believe in those models given what I saw occurring over the horizon in terms of pharmacological, technological inter interventions that would transition a lot of inpatient care to the outpatient setting. Demographics were changing, and you know, a lot of times the forecasting models are significantly biased based on historical perspective. Right. So we decided not to expand our bed capacity. We renovated, we invested in, in the existing capacity, and so it's 100 beds. Our length sure. of stay is a little short of four days, 60%. Um, Close to maybe 60% of our revenue stream comes from the outpatient basis anyway. Okay. Uh, and um, so it's a little bit of a different viewpoint. Okay. All right. And core physicians? Um, large, large multi-specialty group practice. Uh -huh. um, About how many physicians? 100 and, oh, it's over or, 100 uh, physicians. And, yeah. 100 physicians uh, and, and as well other, other yeah, kinds of other, providers? other providers. So probably a total uh, NPs, nurse practitioners, physician mm -hmm. assistants. I think they have a total of about 500 employees, somewhere right around there, 400 employees. Uh, I think all told, total providers, physician and non-physicians, probably close to 150 uh, okay. individuals. We have employed physicians for 20, 25 years. Uh, okay. We've been doing it for a very, very long time. It's a model that I've believed in, in terms of a, of a way of integrating physician services into the healthcare delivery system. That wasn't common 25 years ago. <laughs> no, it ago. wasn't common at all. Yeah. Not at all. And it's becoming fact, more common now. Well, it is. Well, and, that was, and there was also an extensive period of time in which health systems shed their physicians that they employed because they were losing a lot of money on them. Uh, and so there was a great buildup in the 1990s it, with uh, health systems acquiring physician practices, just acquiring them without any rational basis of understanding why they were acquiring them, uh, in part driven by some of the reimbursement models that were out there, particularly capitation that was out there. And so, but they didn't really understand what they were doing and why they were doing. They didn't have a long-term viewpoint of it. And so as quickly as they got in, they got out as, as losses mounted into the millions of dollars. We have been in, uh, doggedly pursuing the uh, physician employment model uh, because we believe that's a good way to integrate. Uh, we had anticipated that uh, because of changing demographics, most physicians at some point in time, not all, but most physicians would prefer to work in a corporate setting where the volatility is reduced relative to private practice or small uh, uh, group practice. The ability to deeply collaborate is enhanced because of investments in EMR that solo practices or small group practices can't make. And frankly, lifestyle choices of a whole new generation of physicians that are coming in that are uh, have a different view of what work is defined as. And so we've been providing physician services on an employment model basis, as I said, probably since, I don't know, 1990, maybe sometime okay. around there. Now, Core Physicians doesn't just have an office here. It's a, yeah, scattered right. throughout Rockingham County. Okay. Um, and uh, my guess is, I think maybe 14 office locations. I could be mistaken uh, with that. We have five, six principal ones, and then smaller satellite ones. So covering okay. covering all of Rockingham County. Okay. And these facilities kind of drive workload into the hospital. Well, well, they do. Well, they do. And other facilities. I mean, we uh -huh. we don't uh, our physician group. They admit mostly here, mm -hmm. um, many cases based on patient preference. They don't. A lot of cases, you know, if we're out in a peripheral area and patients prefer okay. to go to other communities, then that's where they, they would be admitted. Mm -hmm. The ability to care for patients 
that uh, in an organization that has an interconnected EMR is pretty powerful. Okay. And so, uh, and patients sense that as well. Uh, okay. Patients truly appreciate an integrated EMR so that whether they're in the physician office or in the hospital setting, the ED, patients have frequently articulated to us that they can appreciate having a global view of their health status so that people aren't fumbling around to try to figure out who you are. And additionally, there are a lot of specialty services that we don't uh, provide as a health system, and so those patients are referred elsewhere. And so uh, we, we're, yeah, we're scattered all over Rockingham County. Okay. Yeah. And then the Rockingham VNA and Hospice. Tell me a little bit about that. Home care, uh, Rockingham VNA Hospice uh, was an organization that was in financial failure. Uh, they approached us about a some way of incorporating them into us. At that point, I mean, home care has been uh, a economically challenged uh, industry generally. It kind of goes through these cycles of feast or famine based on kind of the political winds of reimbursement in Washington. And uh, Rockingham VNA had a pretty deep uh, history of providing home care services here as well as in the western part of Rockingham County and Merrimack uh, County. And so, but they were in significant financial distress. So they approached us, um, approached me, we evaluated them, uh, analyzed what changes would need to be made in the organization to make it viable. And so we integrated them uh, as a affiliate of our organization. Gosh, that's probably now about... Um, I'll say it's probably about 18 years ago, maybe uh, right around there. So it's been a long time, uh, needless to say. And so uh, it, it is it, our view about home care is that it would be a critical asset uh, to any health system mm-hmm. uh, that is looking to find uh, alternative settings in which care can be provided and depressurize the very expensive acute care setting. Uh, hospitalizations. And so we're able to shorten our length of stay because we have a, a pretty significant outlet for that uh, with home care. So Rockingham uh, is, uh, provides a, a very sophisticated level of home care uh, for uh, patients. Um, what kind for, of things could a patient have done in their home? Uh, well, in, there's several things uh, that can be done. Hospi- often hospice done. care okay. uh, can be done, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of uh, care that's provided is to chronic disease patients, chronic diabetes, chronic congestive heart failure, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, so you're dealing with respiratory support, you're dealing with in, uh, infusion support, um, uh, pharmacological support, and as well as uh, post-surgical follow-up. And so uh, we're able to discharge patients very rapidly from home, appropriately so, but rapidly from the acute care setting to the home care setting, knowing that we have a pretty sophisticated and competent nursing home staff nursing uh, home care staff. If you don't have that, you can't dis- make the discharge. And so frequently, okay. uh, patients will linger in the acute care setting waiting for the opportunity to be discharged at home. And, you know, the home care setting can, in itself can be a challenge from the standpoint of, you know, the sophistication of the patients, the complexities of the family. Uh, there's there's a lot of challenges to home care as well. But it provides, a, you know, most people prefer not to leave the home. You know, if they can receive their care at home, they would prefer to do that. And so we enable that. Okay. So you took over as CEO after about five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you grow into this role? So that was a long time ago. That's uh, in 85, so th- yeah. almost 30 years ago. So how have you grown into this role? And I, I guess I would say, if you could go back to 1985 and talk to your 1985 self, what would you tell him? Hey, <laughs> this is what, be, be prepared for this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what is... Uh, I guess you're you're not well prepared for the the unknown things that come at you, and they come from everywhere. And so, 
Yeah, if you were to look at it from the standpoint of regulatory changes, you know, go, you know, the changes that have occurred in reimbursement, the changes that have occurred in technology, changes that have occurred in the way care can be delivered, um, and I, you know, I'm kind of the person that I, I just expect change to come. Uh, it's part of okay. what I do, um, mm -hmm. and when it, for me, uh, I'm actually, in many ways more comfortable in chaos than not. Okay. Uh, and so um, I can draw, I can see, I can connect dots that people don't even see the dots. I can make connections, I can see patterns, I can see trends. And so for me, what might appear to be, uh, you know, complete ambiguity is not complete ambiguity. There's uncertainty, mm -hmm. but there are pathways that you can see emerging. And those pathways represent choice points for you as a leader and as an organization. What I think is that what an I, important skill for someone a, sitting in your role? I think it's a critical skill. Okay. Um, you can manage by the numbers. You can lead mm -hmm. by the numbers, uh, mm -hmm. but the numbers lie all the time. Okay. You know. So if I followed the numbers, we would have built uh, another the extra bed, right? Right. And, and they would have been wrong. empty. Yeah. So numbers are important. You know, they kind of give you a reference point. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's probably the singular, singular greatest creation of mankind is mathematics. It's such an interesting abstraction. Mm -hmm. And so they're reference points uh, for organization. But you know, you could look at if you think about even digital computing. There's zeros and ones. That's all they are. And yet, you think about the c complex tasks that zeros and ones can be can perform if arranged in patterns. And so, what I I think as a leader is to be able to transcend the numbers. The numbers will certainly, in some cases, maybe reinforce reinforce your tuition. Mm -hmm. I'm a very I'm a very intuitive leader. Mm -hmm. Um, and they can maybe cause you to pause, kind of the, the hard quantifiable data causes you to pause and maybe to think a little bit more deeply. Mm -hmm. But I think a, a significant part of leadership is intuitive, it's, it's emotional, mm -hmm. not to be emotional, but there's an emotional component to it, especially mm -hmm. in healthcare where you're trying to understand the consequences of your decisions in human lives and communities. And I think there's a good part of it in which you need to know when to have risk on the table and want to take risk off the table. So I spend, uh, and I think a lot about things that may not be apparent on a sheet of paper. And so I abstract things from a lot of different parts of the economy, a lot of different parts of the political environment, a lot from a lot of different areas. And I assemble them, in my mind, to a sight picture, you know, a picture of what you see and how you envision the future, how you envision even the opportunities that are going to face you today. And so I, I think it's very important to be intuitive, to be able to make connections to what might appear to be abstract things that at some point in time in the future converge mm -hmm. and create opportunity or threats. Um, to be anticipatory. And anticipatory. I think those are really, really important. Any single leader, any single CEO can sit there and read a balance sheet, read a financial statement, sure. kind of do the you know the financial analytics that need to be, need to happen in any organization that generates revenue and, and has a revenue cycle with it. But it's a lot more than that. And for an organization such as healthcare, where it is um, powerfully grounded in people, doesn't lend itself easily to automation for a variety of reasons at this stage. It is powerfully grounded in people taking care of people, doing things to people, with all the frailties of, of, the, of human endeavor that are not easily mechanized, uh, with all the uncertainties, uh, and recognizing that no human endeavor is error-free, and recognizing people do things um, 
uh, in, in the care of patients that also come from a deep emotional uh, commitment to their profession. So I think being a CEO, being a leader in healthcare requires a lot of complex skills, but I think above them all is uh, your ability to intuit and then your ability to anticipate and your ability to be flexible uh, about the future. That sounds really interesting. I, I'm sitting here listening to you talk about that, and it sounds like your your interest in history mm. kind of comes back around. Well, it comes maybe, back. It know, does. I'm right? sure it does. Yeah, history. Yeah. What is it? What they say? You're you're doomed to report it, to right. repeat it if you're yeah. not uh, if you don't yeah. understand it. Um, but it seems like the kind of intuition that you would have gotten, or, or maybe the, the kind of intuition that you had, would have interested you in history to begin with. Maybe. Um, uh, no, no question about it. You know, you think about uh, great leaders, and uh, you know, and I. There's a lot of things that have in common, you know, and 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 so uh, your ability to connect to the people that you lead is really critical. And I I tell people this, and we, you know, Exeter as an organization has had its ups and ups and downs. I mean, it, the environment is remarkably challenging, and and leadership is easy when things are easy. You know, it's, yeah, sure, sure, it's easy. Right. It's when it's when when it all goes south, when it goes wrong, and it is then that you really begin to appreciate how people look to a single person to assure, to find a pathway, to correct a situation, to provide an alternative uh, to the position that they're in. And there's no one else that can do that at that moment. And so, and if you think about the great leaders who were able to execute on the opportunity that was presented to them historically, they were able to do that, you know, and so whether it's Roosevelt, whether it's Shackleton, whether it's, you know, some of the great military leaders of our time who threw the playbook away and, and understood that they had to deal with what was presented to them and improvise. And, you know, it's, it's really quite striking. And I, and I really think about anybody that's in a official capacity uh, of, of being a leader it doesn't mean necessarily that they are a leader. And opportunities are thrown your way. They come your way to give you the opportunity to be the leader. Uh, and you have to choose. You have a unique viewpoint, having been here for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. You've, you have been able to kind of stay ahead of the wave in a lot of ways. You, you made it through some, some major kind of seismic yep. changes. You mentioned, um, you know, the shift to prospective payment, yep. big shift to outpatient care. You, you saw that coming. You, yep. you avoided it. Uh, or, or you embraced, you, you were, it. embraced yep. it rather, yep. rather than yep. avoid it. You yep. avoided making the mistake of, mm -hmm. of, of continuing in the old way. Um, and now, you know, you're, you're kind of in the midst of the uh, adjusting to the ACA and the implications of that yeah. policy change. Yeah. So kind of talk about some of the big changes that have happened during your tenure and kind of how, how Exeter has kind of thrived on them. Well, I think that's probably part of the reason why I've stayed here. I mean, it's, I mean, it's like I said, I thrive in ambiguity and chaos. I mean, mm -hmm. it, at some point in time, you've got to make a decision, but um, that stimulation of uncertainty and um, volatility creates opportunity all the time. It just does. And it's just a question of how you, what pathway you see and which one you choose to take. Um, so whether you, 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 you think about the global interconnectedness of, of economies, you think about the United States industry that historically has been largely insular from that and as a result of that has been able to afford the benefit, greater benefit expansion that has occurred and the wage expansion that had occurred up until probably the last 10 years. You know, and the United States still is the world's largest economy, but that's changing. You know, it's being globally challenged as a dominant economy. 
uh, we are significantly in debt. Now, you know, there's a lot of views as to whether that's, you know, good or bad. Technologies, uh, dis truly disruptive technologies, which enable uh, the consumption of healthcare to be displaced regardless of geography and time, uh, is pretty significant, uh, and that is only starting to take hold. Um, let's transition and talk kind of specifically about leadership, and then I'd like a sure. little bit about mentorship. How would you kind of encapsulate your leadership philosophy? I mean, we've talked about fair about it now, but if we you have. put it into. You know, if you were to come to one of my management meetings, you'd think all chaos had broken out, you know, at a meeting. <laughs> so I, I really, I like loose, tight management. I guess that's maybe the, kind of the best way to describe it. I, I hire competent people. I provide them the support, it, encourage them to take the risk, encourage them to think differently than me, to push me caused me to see things differently than what the way I currently see it, um, see things. And so I tend to place competent people in the roles, align them around our principal vision, our mission, our key strategic objectives, and I let them go, truly. We, uh, you know, so there's a, a high degree of autonomy amongst my management group. There is obviously coordination because we have to function at a very coordinated basis. Uh, we are increasingly more integrated in what we do than disintegrated in what we do. And yet, I don't, uh, I don't attempt to orchestrate uh, for them uh, the understanding of what their key roles and responsibilities are. They need to know what their key roles and responsibilities are. We create an environment in which they can create uh, naturally forming collaborative bridges, formally, informally. Um, there's a lot of matrix management that occurs here. Uh, you know, uh, between people that have formal reporting relationships to each other, bridging over to other areas of the organization that they don't have formal reporting relationships. Leadership for me, as I said, on a singular basis, on an individual basis, what do I think the organization asks me to do? It, I, I think they ask me to provide principled guidance, support, ethically driven decision making in our organization through role modeling. You know. They're, they're, I, I, I look at, and we've faced many, many challenges in the organization, we always come back to what's the right thing to do. And frequently the right thing to do places you at individual jeopardy, it may place your organization at financial jeopardy, but at the end of the day we care for people and you have to always make the decision what's the right thing to do for that patient, for that family, for this community. And we're unswerving in that commitment of always doing the right thing. We talk a lot about our true north as an organization in terms of um, our orientation to those principles um, of you know, high quality care, sustainable health care, ideal patient experience, uh, and ensuring that when patients come here they receive the very best care that we're capable of providing to them. We, um, Are those the values that, of the organization? Yep, see them anywhere, okay. everywhere. Right. Um, they're, they're everywhere. And you know, I think as leadership, you know, leadership is frequently characterized as functioning in the gray areas. And a lot of times there are a lot of things that are gray, you know, in terms of either regulatory interpretation, legal interpretation. What does this mean? What do you think that means? I think our laws in this country are purposely written for the sake of being black and white. But, in you know, over decades of interpretation, they seem to become gray. And so we recognize that there are things that are in many, many cases that are, that are they may be gray. But as a leader, you always have the intuitive sense as to what's right. No matter how great it is, you just, okay. you just know that. And I look for that in people just to know what's the right thing to do here. And if they're uncertain, let's talk about what we think the right thing to do is. Uh, leadership, you know, when I think about the board, what does the board look for me to do as a CEO is, uh, to, is to 
try to, to understand the operating environment that we're in today and what we might be in tomorrow and create a pathway for our sustainability today going into tomorrow. Um, what is that pathway? What does it look like? What investments do we need to make? What kind of people do we need to have? What shouldn't we do? And, and so they look to me to do that. And so I, you know, I kind of view myself, you're not quite like the uh, kind of the harried uh, coach, you know, running up and down the sidelines of a, you know, of a football game, you know, because you know, I'm looking at them, you know, but, you know, sometimes when the play starts, it's out of their hands. You know, so what do they do? They recruit good people and they make sure they're competent, well cared for. There's a strategy, there's a tactic, there's a plan, and then the game begins. But what doesn't change, it can't change, is your confidence in the people that you hired, um, you know, and their adaptability. So I, you know, I, I can't say I have a, a, an expressed leadership philosophy. I don't know if I'm that smart. Um, but I do know when, what to do and when to do it and what the right thing is. Let's let, let's just finish up on talking about uh, mentorship a little sure. bit. Sure, I sought people out. Uh, yeah. You know, the gentleman who directed me up here was a, yeah. a, a person who, you know, would uh, always make it a point just to. He wasn't mentoring me. He probably didn't think that, but I took it as that in terms of asking me about what I thought and what I did and what, what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so yeah, it's. Uh, there, it's, we've not had that. We try to do that in our own organization, which okay. is probably your follow-on yeah. question. Yeah. Mentoring, maybe because I haven't had as much of an opportunity, I'm very keen on that, okay. of how do you mentor someone, how do you consciously and subconsciously track them and, mm-hmm. and engage them uh, and spend time with them. On the clinical level, we have very formal mentoring programs. We do. Uh, okay. We do. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, Outside I, of an official training program, like they're yeah. a resident or something like that. No, still... you're new to our organization and you're a clinician, you're going to get mentored here in terms okay. of who we are, how we work, uh-huh. things that we do, things that we don't do, why, you know, someone to go to in case, you know, you need help. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also uh, do that for our leaders as well. Uh, and uh, so we do, we do try to mentor and to create opportunities for that. And, you know, we've had formal programs for leadership. We've had informal programs. We've kind of cycled through it. We've had a relatively stable uh, leadership group in this organization for a number of years. But when new, when new managers come in, you know, they're, they are connected with other leaders in the organization. They're tracked uh, so that they're never out there alone in yeah. terms of how you're doing. And as an individual, um, you know, there are people in the organization who I have a particular interest in because I see them, so I see them as high performers in the future that I take a particular interest in and in, uh, in ensuring that they are growing and developing. Uh, so that's kind of the way we do it. All right. So kind of in conclusion, um, what advice do you have for someone thinking about going into healthcare administration today? What education should they pursue? What kind of initial jobs yeah. should they be looking for? Yeah, I, um, I did, you know, I just had a long conversation with one of the uh, uh, interns um, from last year, just a couple of weeks ago, um, as they were sorting through directionally where they want to go. Um, and they were most interested in how I got to where I got to, and almost everyone is, you know, and like, well, how'd you do that? And I, and, and I'd like to say I had a grand plan, but as you can see in this interview, I didn't have a grand plan per se. What I tell them is that. You know, generally, I'm a person that will go through a door. Just am. You know, I, uh, you know, I, I, I have a view that there, are, there are so many, many opportunities. As long as it's not life-threatening, you know, uh, and you can assess that, you know. But my tendency is to go through a door uh, without 
necessarily a clear understanding of what the destination will be, but I always have a sense directionally of where I'm going. Uh, and, I, and so at, at this stage of their career, I encourage them to go through doors. You know, it, it don't get so structured around a destination that you never get your trip started. And so their healthcare is, is a remarkably uh, diverse uh, um, uh, opportunity for employment. It represents enormous opportunities. $3 trillion a year we spend. You can't find a place there uh, to right. work. You know, and so the, don't get wrapped around conventions. Well, you know, that, well, I need to, you know, get my master's degree. It is absolutely helpful. There is no question about it, especially if you can get it in a very rigorous program. It will help in that rigor. But go into the, I always tell them, go into the program mature. Yeah, go into it mature. Uh, knowing a little bit more about life and experience, it'll just enrich in your graduate studies. But, you know, so whether you go in the pharmacology side, you go into the, you know, the biotech side, you go into the actual delivery side, you go into the policy side, you go into the insurance side, you go into the physician side. All of those are great opportunities. Uh, and one will lead to another opportunity, to another opportunity. Have a sense of what your destination is um, and be surprised when you arrive there. Um, so I, it, you know, there is sometimes they just kind of get this kind of this, uh, this mental model constructed that I need to do A, B, and C to get to D, and then I can get to where you are, Kevin. And I don't think it's that way anymore. It wasn't that way for me. You know, right. I could have easily been somewhere else than sitting here talking to you today. Uh, but I always, like I said, I always have a sense of, you know, directionally, kind of where do you want to be going? You'd be surprised when the opportunity, you know, stares you in the face. A lot of people don't even see it. And the other thing is, you know, I tell them this all the time, uh, is that you just never say no to opportunity. You just never say no to, to someone who you're working with who asks you if you can do more response, do something more for them. So... We've hired, I can't tell you how many interns into this organization who have, who have had stellar careers here. And, uh, you know, and they have been eager to take on more responsibility. And when I was asked to be the CEO uh, in this organization, I was three years out of graduate school. What did I know? I didn't say no. I can figure that out. Yeah. You know, I've always, I can figure that out. I have enough yeah. of a common understanding of what it means to run an organization, I thought that I could do it. Uh, yeah. And so um, and when the opportunity is presented to you, take the opportunity, get the experience. You can parley it and you can do something else somewhere else. Remain true to your values. What are your values? Um, so that's why I always kind of advise them. That is great advice. Thank you so much for being a part of the Health Leader Forge today. I've enjoyed it. Enjoy the conversation. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge a production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community. And we'll see you again in about two weeks.